You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Our guest on this episode is an experienced advocate with a demonstrated history of helping companies to save money on their real estate. He's also the founder and CEO of MainlineDelivery.com, a company that was founded in May 2008, ran it for eight years and eight months, and then actually sold that company in an acquisition deal to Square. So really excited to talk about exiting someone who's actually sold their business before and how you got to that. On this episode, for your listening pleasure, are the self-made strategies of Dan Ritterman. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing well, Tony. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, awesome to have you on the show, man. I know we've been talking about this for a little while. You currently are a commercial real estate broker for Tactics Real Estate Advisors. So we'll talk a little bit about commercial real estate, what's going on right now, what you think is going to be happening in the future. I think that's what everyone's pretty pretty excited to, to get into, given the COVID-19 status of the world. But I personally am really psyched to talk about MainlineDelivery.com and your acquisition by Square and all of those things. So let's get the elephant in the room out of the way. Let's talk about commercial real estate first. What's going on in the world right now? And what do you think we can expect? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's sort of funny because in what I do, Historically, people aren't generally dying to talk about commercial real estate. It's not the thing that everyone's kind of top of mind all the time for people. But because of what's happening with the COVID pandemic and sort of the way that companies are having to rethink sort of at the last minute how they consume their real estate, it's sort of top of mind for a lot of companies. If you think about, unless you're doing some heavy manufacturing, heavy warehousing, or have a lot of materials costs, most companies, their people are their number one line item, and then real estate comes second. And a lot of companies right now are really reconsidering, what are we doing with our real estate, especially if you're in a classic office building that you might not even be able to get into. So um, to say it's interesting would be an understatement, but it really is top of mind for a lot of people right now. What are we looking at if you're in a brick and mortar location that maybe has been shut down for a little while, maybe it's back up to some operating capacity of some sort. What let's look at it first from the tenants perspective, because first and foremost, you you work for tactics. We've had Michael Rabinowitz on as well, who also works for tactics. Both of you guys are awesome. You guys represent tenants, which is the interesting side of it to begin with, right? You help the tenants because in commercial real estate, the landlords have a representative. Traditionally, tenants do not unless they're bringing an attorney to the table, which by the way, you also used to practice law. You're now more so focused on tenant rep. But what what are we looking at from the tenant perspective first and foremost? And then we'll kind of get into the landlord and um, the supply and demand side of things. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's exactly right. We are what's called tenant representatives. So we exclusively represent companies who are looking to occupy real estate. Your traditional commercial real estate broker makes a majority of their money representing landlords, listing buildings. You'll see a lot of the very large companies have these listings, especially down in center city, Philadelphia. And those brokers are really focused on the landlord side of the work and helping them fill their buildings and generate rent streams. We have sort of taken the opposite side of that, much like your attorney would when you're hiring an attorney. You really want someone who's zealously advocating for your side, right? Uh, you would never hire an attorney who's also representing the guy who you're suing. In fact, you can't do that. It's unethical. But for some reason in the commercial real estate world, that seems to be very much accepted. So we are a group of mostly former attorneys, not all former attorneys. I'm a very happily recovered attorney, I like to tell people. But what we do is we really step into the shoes of our client and say, if I were the one who was running or operating this company, how would I want to run this process? And then we come in and we help them run that process for that one or two or three years or however long it really takes to close that deal, where it may have made sense for that company to maybe have an in-house person, but not full-time. So we can sort of step into the shoes of that person and help them navigate their real estate needs. We do a lot of office work. The majority of our work is sort of a, you know in large office buildings out in the suburbs or in the center city of Philadelphia. And the problem that our clients are having right now, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, is that they are paying for a lot of office space that they either currently cannot use or are choosing not to use for one reason or another related to the pandemic, right? So uh, a lot of office buildings in Philadelphia are currently under 10% occupied on a daily basis. 
And if you drive around town, you'll notice that, especially in the suburbs, parking lots are empty on the middle of a weekday because people just aren't comfortable currently going to their office space. But their companies are still paying the rent stream on that office space. So they're looking for creative solutions to not only maybe stop those payments or stop the bleeding right now for space that they're not using, but also using this as an opportunity to rethink what do we really want our office space of the future to look like if we even want to have one? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they can do anything about it right now because you might be locked into a three, five, seven-year lease and you have some term remaining, but it's at least giving everyone an opportunity to think, how do we even, if we can start from scratch, which maybe never thought we could do, but now we're sort of having the opportunity to do, how would we draw this if we could just wave the magic wand all over again, we like to say? Awesome. Yeah. And this is actually a discussion I've been having with clients in my law practice. So if you don't mind giving away a little bit of secret sauce without completely giving away the farm, what are you seeing high level in terms of solutions for that? It's a great question. We do a lot of law firm work. We work with some of the largest law firms in Philadelphia, all the way down to the midsize and smaller firms. And I think this is a case of Uh, accelerated trends instead of new trends. And that's something that I've said about a lot of things related to the pandemic. And I'm no genius. I didn't coin this or anything, but it seems to me like what we are seeing are changes that would have taken, let's say, five or seven years to make are being compressed into let's do this right now, or at least as soon as practical. So the old classic law firm model used to be partners get the large corner offices, next senior guys get the next bigger offices, entry-level guys get the smallest offices. And That was really a marketing tactic for these law firms to try to recruit the top talent. Part of the package was, sure, it was the money and the prestige and the benefits and all these other things, but it was also, you'll get this size office with this number, a dedicated secretary or a dedicated secretary, whatever number of attorneys. And a lot of law firms now are taking this opportunity to say, well, maybe not every attorney needs to have an office. So instead of having a law firm with 50 attorneys and 50 offices, maybe we have a law firm that has 50 attorneys working out of that office. I'm using air quotes so no one can see. But when I say working, I just mean that's their home base. That doesn't mean they go there every day. So maybe the top 10 partners get a dedicated office and the other 20 offices are on a sign-up only basis or we call hoteling, where you pick, I'm going to use this for one day. And then if I'm not there that day, somebody else can use that office for one day bring in your laptop, hook it up to the monitors, and let's get to work. So a lot of law firms are rethinking their office space as a place for gathering, either whether that's for depositions or meetings or planning sessions, they have an upcoming trial or a motion that's due. And then the other offices are really just touchdown spaces, ancillary and around those conference spaces. So that was a trend that was already happening. I think classic law firms were in these sort of 800 to 900 square feet per attorney when you kind of measure out the number of attorneys by the total square footage taken. And we have been on a trend over the last five years to try to get that number down closer to, let's say, 500 square feet per attorney. And that's been done through smaller offices, but also through shrinking the number of offices uh, that are you know in the current suite. So what we're really seeing now is what we expected to take five years Law firms are just saying, well, we're not in our office anyway. So when we do go back, let's change the face of it if we have an opportunity to do so. Um, The other thing to remember, like I said earlier, is only a limited number of law firms or offices will have a lease that turns over in the next 24 months. So only a limited number of companies are even in a position to, let's say, shed that excess space unless they're willing to put it onto the sublease market, which is sort of a totally different conversation. But I really think this whole accelerated trends you know, versus new trends is really what we're seeing is a lot of accelerated trends. Now, what about those companies and and businesses who are stuck, for lack of a better term, in a lease that's got three, five, seven years left on it? The traditional commercial lease is somewhere in that 10-year range typically anyways, right? So, you know, if you just signed a new lease in 2019, guess what? You've got a nine-year ride out the rest of the way, right? So have you seen any landlords with an openness to renegotiate, to help stop the bleeding? And if so, what solutions have you seen for tenants? Um, Or or what ideas do you have that a tenant could go to their landlord and say, hey, would you be open to this? It's a great question. I I would say from March through July of this year, almost all of our work were companies coming to us and saying, the broker that I use to get into my office that also represents my landlord. I don't think he really wants to help me get out of my lease because it's most important that I keep paying this to the landlord. So we have new companies coming to us saying, we understand you only work with tenants. How can you help us? 
And the thing, you don't need to be a lawyer to kind of understand that there are two ways to deal with a problem. And that is within the contract or outside of the contract. And generally speaking, and again, this is not legal advice sure. and I haven't read anyone's lease, which is just for the purpose of the podcast. But generally speaking, your lease likely does not provide you with the kind of relief that most companies are hoping for right now. And if you do, and you happen to negotiate that into your deal, that's great. And obviously you have your rights under your lease, but assuming your lease doesn't provide you that kind of relief, this is mostly a case of going to your landlord and essentially making this a business proposition and saying, if you would like me to be a rent paying tenant for the next seven, 10, five years, whatever you have left on your lease, we're going to need to make some kind of agreement to help me bridge the gap for the next 12 months so that I can get back on my feet. And a lot of times what that comes with is really opening your financial books and showing your landlord why you need this kind of relief, what your current issue is, and why you think it's short-term. It doesn't help your landlord to say, well, I'm hurting now, but I don't have any plans to not be hurting 12 months from now. <laughs> right. Because why would they kind of deal with you now? They'll be in the same boat 12 months from now. So it's really about building a case about why this is a temporary problem and what they can do to help you. And not only that, what you're prepared to give them on the back end is that extra term to make up the lost rent. Is that taking a couple months of free rent and spreading it out over the next 24 months with no interest or something like that, where they can recoup those costs. And I think that one of the really important things to remember is very few landlords, not all, but very few landlords own their buildings free and clear. And that means that there is a lender or a bank or some other financial institution who is really on the back end of these decisions. Right. And that as much as you think your landlord might be your friend, and he very much might be, they have to turn around to go make a case to their lenders why they should take a break on this rent stream because it would be better for both of them in the long run. So it's really about building that case and then going to your landlord and making a clear case about why, how they can help you, but in turn, how this will help them and their lenders over the long term. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's some of the discussion I've been at. I've had some clients who have come to me with the, the same exact situation. I've reached out to the landlords on their behalf. And first and foremost, while, you know, I appreciate the the lawyers, this is not legal advice and this isn't, um, you should, I think, work with a representative, whether it's contacting Dan at Tactics, whether it's reaching out to us at our law firm or another attorney to help you that's experienced, first and foremost, make sure you're working with an attorney that's worked in the lease negotiation field because they're going to be in a better position to say, you know, how can we negotiate this? And exactly that strategy, right? What I've seen from a lot of landlords is, well, you owe us X amount, tens of thousands, a hundred thousand, maybe more in back rent. Uh, when are you going to pay that? Right? Because that's, that's what they want to know. And there are strategic ways to collaboratively approach that situation and discussion. And to your point, try to shape the discussion in a way that adds value to the landlord and with with some transparency, but with proper representation so that you're not shooting yourself in the foot or committing some automatic breach of your lease or something like that, but saying to them, look, I owe you this much money. If I had it, I'd be paying it, right? And saying to them, this is where we are from a business perspective. This is why we're struggling. We do have the intention of resuming normal operation whenever we can do so safely. But right now, to your point, nobody knows when that is. So we need to to find a strategy that's flexible enough so that we don't end up just two, three months down, four months down, February of 2021 in another situation where now we're committing a second breach right, of the modification. But let's have a discussion about how we both might be able to come out of this. And I liked your, your um, strategy of maybe we need to, to spread that out over 24 months in the future. Maybe it needs to be scaled. Maybe it needs to be a percentage of, of revenue. I mean, maybe you need to, to negotiate with that tool that you might have at your disposal and just say, look, I'm being transparent. This is what I can afford. This is what I can do. This might be a step forward and out of this. Yeah. And people talk about um, a K-shaped recovery. And I, I don't want to get too bogged down in the in how we uh, you know illustrate these recoveries, mm -hmm. but it's pretty clear to everyone, I think, at this point that some companies have been extremely hard hit by this, and some companies are doing incredibly well. And it's very difficult for landlords when everybody is asking for rent relief because they can't use their office space. Right. It's very difficult for them to parse, well, who's asking for this rent relief because they need it? 
And who's asking for this rent relief because it's convenient and everyone is asking for it and they're not using their office space right now. Right. So we've had some companies come to us and say, we'd like to negotiate, you know, go to our landlord and negotiate rent relief. And we say, okay, well, how are you being negatively affected by COVID? And they say, well, we're not, we just don't want to pay our rent anymore. <laughs> and we, you know, and we say to them, well, we can ask, but you're not building a very compelling case <laughs> right, here, right? right? And you need to really be able to go tell a story because the landlord has to go tell that story to their lenders. And the landlord can say, well, our client's really doing well. They just don't want to pay rent anymore. So is it okay if we don't collect this? That's not going to fly, obviously, for obvious reasons. So you really want to have a story buttoned up and you really need to make sure that you're really in need before you go asking your landlord for favors. Now, what do you think from just the overall commercial real estate perspective? And this is just us having a discussion. This isn't a professional opinion. We're just kind of talking it out. Um, what do you think the market is going to look like whenever we finally do, you know, crest that hill and overcome these challenges? Do you see this being an opportunity for a tenant favorable market? Or do you see this as an opportunity for the landlords to really tighten the screws on certain things? Because looking back, let's say, let's go back to around 2008-ish when we had the bubble, right? When we had the, the recession and what came out of that, that I think we in this space saw was personal guarantees, was, you know, landlords strategizing um, through their attorneys, through their representatives, how to make contracts more landlord friendly. And not necessarily, and I think people thought post-recession, oh, rents are going to drop, you know, the market's going to kind of bottom out, and tenants are going to be in a really friendly position. And I think the opposite happened. So I'm curious what your perspective is, what you think is going to come out of this and what's going to happen on the back end, because there's probably going to be a lot of supply of commercial space, right? Absolutely. Although I think it's important to sort of parse out the different types of commercial space because um, you don't need to be heavily involved in the commercial real estate space to know that retail has obviously been very much hurt by this. Um, you know, brick and mortar locations, or, uh, mom and pop shops, especially restaurants have really had a hard time unless they were already doing a significant portion of their revenue by delivery or takeout. Um, obviously, shopping malls are not doing well. Preet is likely going to file for bank or potentially file for bankruptcy, is renegotiating with their lenders as we speak. So, in terms of the retail world, I do think there's going to have to be some pressure released and prices will have to drop to entice newcomers to sort of come in and fill those spaces. But we'll have to see how that plays out. But retail is sort of its own very specific um, animal right now. Similar on the opposite side of the spectrum, we have industrial space or these flex spaces that have absolutely taken off because all these companies that are doing last mile distribution, all these e-commerce companies, um, all, all contractors are doing really well. People are doing a lot of work at home. So industrial space has gotten really tight because there's a lot of companies in need of this warehousing distribution. And then I think the office space um, sort of sits right in the middle of those two. Uh, if you fast, uh, if, not fast forward, if you rewind eight months back to February, which, which seems like you know decades ago at this point, um, rents in Philadelphia were as high as they'd ever been and vacancies were as low as they'd ever been. And that meant that there was not a whole lot of negotiating room for tenants when they went to try to find a new space for a landlord. Because if you weren't willing to abide by the landlord's terms, well, they just went to the next tenant in line because the vacancies were so low and there weren't, that, there weren't space. Um, my personal opinion is that that is going to be over. It's not over yet, but I think that those times are over. I think that there are a lot of companies that are out there that are either barely paying rent or not paying rent, waiting to see what will happen, how long this will progress. And we will start to see more vacancies come to the market as companies either shed space when their leases end and they decide that they want to condense their space into something much smaller, or we're already seeing some subleases hitting the market. Um, we're seeing these sort of like pressure valve releases of people that can take these immediate steps either by subleasing space or shedding at the end of their term. Like you said, if you say the average commercial lease is seven years, that means only about 15% of leases turn over every 12 months, something in that range. So only about 15% of companies can even make one of these wholesale, let's get rid of our office space or chop half of it off. The other ones are putting it on the sublease market and hoping someone comes and picks it up. So I think office space can go one of two ways. What we've really seen now though, for the time being, is that landlords are very much trying to hold the line on their asking rent. They don't want to start publicizing lower rates because once they do that, it's very difficult to claw them back. Those rates are generally publicly listed. They're very easy to get out through. They're very easy to get access to. So what we are seeing, at least right now, is more significant tenant packages. 
whether that's through helping with build-out costs or whether that's through longer free rent periods, because that allows a landlord to say, hey, look, we are still asking X for this building. All is fine. Don't worry about it. But when you peel back the layers of what their actual return is on the deals that are going out now, they've gotten much tighter because uh, tenants are now able to go say, well, if I don't go to your space, I'll go to the next one because these vacancies are going to start are going to start opening up. So our personally, I'm to say I'm excited for anything right now is a little bit of an over-exaggeration because no one should really be excited about anything that's happening with, with these days in the business environment. But in terms of the opportunity for our tenants, I suspect in the next two to five years, we will have much more opportunity to get very aggressive with what we are looking for because there will be more options. We always tell our, our, our clients, if we have three really good options, we can just go to the second cheapest building that you like more and say, you've got to match this other one or we're going to go there. And that was not something that we could necessarily do, you know, even 10 months ago when the market was sort of at its peak. So I don't think we've seen the cliff yet in terms of asking rent, but we've seen a softening of the market, both in terms of the sublease space um, and what you're kind of willing to get from what you're able to get from your landlord. But in the industrial world, which we do a fair bit of, it's not nearly as soft because there are more companies now actually getting into that space and needing to expand that use. And then retail, I really think is just... um, it's really a wild card. We'll have to see what, what the recovery looks like, how many of these you know, restaurants and small mom and pop stores and some of these large national chains start opening up units again and start taking that vacant space. It might be a while. Yeah. And that's great advice, by the way, that, that often people don't think of is that you have more negotiation power with those sort of softer things, the perk packages, right? The build outs, whether it's going to be a white box or down to the studs, whether you're going to get the landlord to agree to mitigate damages if you have to back out of your lease, getting an allowance in more flexible terms on being able to sublease, um, adding in force majeure outs, you know, with quarantines and stuff like that, government regulated closures. All of those little things are things that you might be able to negotiate, even though the number may not be the same. And if you're looking at the big picture and the free rent is one that I think most people that aren't in that space and you and I are, so we see it a lot, right? Because you can get a landlord to say, I'll give you free rent until you're done your build out, until you're ready to open, until your grand opening day or whatever, or give you even an additional month of free rent for your first month of business to try to bridge the gap on some of these things. So those those are all things to look out for, for sure. Great advice. All right, let's shift to the exciting part of the conversation, at least for me, mainlinedelivery.com. Sure. Take us back, 2008, um, how did you come up with this idea? How did you develop it? How big was your team? L- let's look at the beginning of mainlinedelivery.com. Sure. So um, I'm a political science major uh, with an, who, in Quebec, going back to college with the Penn State. My plan was to go to law school. Um, I had a, which I did eventually end up doing and we'll get there. But um, my best friend from high school was at WashU. He was a chemical engineer. And, um, you know, my feeling in entrepreneurship is that there's no reason to reinvent the wheel for every business. And I'm certainly not creative enough to do that. So we were home on a break and we were just talking to each other and we really wanted to order Wawa delivery. This this is truly the origin story of mainline delivery. And um, we wanted to order delivery and there was no way to do it. So our initial idea was to do wawadelivery.com or something to that effect and do delivery for them. And really the idea was there was a company at Penn State that was called Lion Menus. And it was strictly a portal. It was a place that you could go online, you could place an order for delivery. It would get sent to the restaurant restaurant would use their own delivery drivers, bring it to your house. In St. Louis, where my friend went to, uh, my friend Rich Siegel went to school, there was a company called 569 Dine, which was the exact opposite. They had no website. You called them to place your order. They then called the restaurant to order the food and they sent their driver to deliver it to you. And we were kind of thinking to ourselves like, well, we have both halves of the equation here. Why aren't we just doing this together? And again, there was a company called Dining In in Philadelphia that ultimately got acquired by Grubhub who was doing exactly this. We really were not reinventing the wheel. What our idea though was to do it was to do take this business model and move it out to the main line, which was effectively the area that we had grown up and we had a lot of local knowledge of the area. It's a suburb right outside of Philadelphia, if, if you're not familiar with, um, with the Philadelphia area. And so, you know, we were two 21-year-old kids and we called Wawa and we said, let's do this. You know, shockingly in retrospect, they never returned our call. <laughs> but we, um, we had, the, I think, the, the formation of the idea of, well, we should just be doing this with restaurants, right? Let's not do this with, with, um, with Wawa. So 
we basically decided that we were going to take a year off after college. We got an apartment together out in the suburbs and we were going to build this website. And this was going to be my way to justify to my parents that I was going to put off law school for a year, but it was okay because I was starting a company and my parents were not happy about it. And they still tell me that they were wrong, obviously. Um, but you know, it, it was just, it was a way for us to do something that we thought the community really needed. We figured other people are doing this in other areas. So we know the numbers work, but clearly they must work because other people are doing this, right? So that was sort of our fallback was like, well, if they can make it work, why can't we make it work? So um, we started the whole company with about $20,000. We used 19 of it to build a website. And we spent the last thousand to buy like these GPS units to put into our cars. So to go back into the Wayback Machine, um, this was 2008. The first iPhone was released in 2007. So not to say that this was like the dark ages of the internet, but <laughs> it, it was it, it was a time where people weren't really using the internet for like everyday immediate services, right? Right. So there was a little bit of consumer education that had to be done to kind of explain to people like, no, it's okay. You can actually place this order on the internet and I promise you it will show up 45 minutes later. Like, don't worry, it will work. Um, especially in the restaurant world, that was very difficult. But, you know, our idea and the way that I've always run my businesses, especially this one was... Um, once we put out the initial $20,000 capital outlay, um, we weren't spending any money. It was just the two of us living in an apartment. And when an order came in, we literally would rocks, paper, scissors, whoever lost had to go take the delivery. <laughs> I mean, and that, that's how we ran for the first you know, four to six months until we couldn't afford to anymore. Um, but the real crash course that it gave me was figuring out how to walk into a restaurant as a 21-year-old kid, kid who had never worked in a restaurant before and to try to sell this into restaurant owners who didn't really know what the internet was in a lot of cases, because we were a lot of mom and pop shops. These weren't sophisticated organizations. And to convince them that we could do what we were doing was a great learning experience for us. And we finally found four or five restaurants that would take a flyer on us, Nice. decided that was enough to launch, and we opened the website. So we built it from May to December of 2008. We launched in December. The website immediately broke. We shut the whole thing down. We retooled for four weeks and then we reopened. And, um, you know, like I said, we, we kept things really lean by doing it ourselves. But that was sort of the origin story of it was it wasn't this like grand idea. It was sort of a natural progression of something we saw work elsewhere, but nobody had thought to try in a different location. And we were able to be sort of the first movers in that market and really corner it while other, while other big companies grew up around us. I, I think it's an awesome story, by the way. I, I don't think you're doing yourself justice. I, it's the predecessor <laughs> to Uber Eats and all these other things that we've, you know, now is so like commonplace to your point, right? This was probably in the era where, where you had to use like VZW nav app to navigate in your car or print out a um, a Yahoo Maps or something, you know, or MapQuest map, like the three pages with all the ads all over it uh, back in the good old days. So all right. So how did you get the first five restaurants to jump in? Like, what was the incentive being completely unknown? What did you offer them of value to get them to say, all right, yes, we'll, we'll do our deliveries through you guys. We'll, we'll sign on for this. And what was your revenue model? If you don't mind me asking, like, how did you generate revenue here? It's a great question. So, um, the first restaurant I ever walked into was Boston style pizza in Marion station. If you're familiar with the area, I walked in, I talked to the guy at the counter. I told him what we were planning on doing. And he said, yeah, that sounds good. The owner will be here this afternoon. Why don't you leave me your card? And I thought to myself, I need to get some business cards. <laughs> so, I li so I literally wrote my name and my phone number on a sheet of paper, ripped it off and handed it to the guy. They never, they never signed up for mainline delivery within 10 years, shockingly. But it was the, the point being was, it was very much a learn on the fly situation right. because like I said, I was a political science major. My friend was a chemical engineer between the two of us. We had never taken a business course in our life, but what we had was some common sense and, and really like a pretty clear vision for what we thought the company could be. So we really, it took some progressive and forward thinking restaurant owners to really see that this had some opportunity. So we, we really focused on restaurants that we knew would be, would travel well for delivery. So not fast food, but you know, um, sushi was always a huge one for us. Um, Indian food turned out to be huge for us, which I didn't know at the time it would be. Um, a couple of restaurants that serve just like basic, um, like Ruby's Diner, for instance, ones that serve chicken fingers and fries. And people were already doing it. They were already doing large takeout business. And we sort of said to them, well, 
how much more do you think people would order if they didn't have to drag their kids out of their house and put them in the car and come to your house, right? They were family-friendly restaurants. And we said, well, if we can increase that person of eating your food once a month to three times a month, it's worth what you're paying us because you'll increase your profits anyway. Now, it didn't work for everyone. And the truth is, we were really, we were selling our marketing services to these restaurants without any loyal fan base to actually market right, to. Right. So what it really required was some companies seeing the future that this is where things were going to be and, and taking a shot with us. And then once we were up and running with five or six restaurants and we could say, you know, it's a small town, call one of these four restaurant owners. They'll tell you that we're doing a good job. The worst thing I used to say this all the time is the worst thing anyone will tell you about us is that we're just not driving them that much business. None of them will say that the business that we are bringing them is causing problems. And that was big for us, was having a reference of somebody that can say, like, these guys will do what they say they're going to do. They won't just place an order from your restaurant and not show up, which was the concern from a lot of these companies was we weren't able to sort of do the things that we said we were able to do. And it would leave the customers with a bad impression of the restaurant. Um, So once we were able to get past that, we really hit some critical mass with um, some more restaurants joining on. That all happened relatively quickly once we kind of got off the ground and running. Um, the revenue stream model is fascinating, and I've been fascinated with it um, ever since, really, in, in the food delivery space. We initially thought that we could get by by charging restaurants 7%, including credit card fees, which would only put 4% in our pocket. And we ran all these models, and they all made sense to me at the time. And that, in retrospect, was crazy. Because if you think about what restaurant delivery services are charging restaurants now, it's about 30%, and they are still not profitable. So it's a really difficult industry to make money in if you're spending a fortune on marketing. So we started at 7% and we ratcheted that up over time to where we were charging new restaurants right before the acquisition, about 25%, including credit card fees, because that's really where we needed to be to be profitable once the machine sort of grew and we weren't doing all the deliveries ourselves and doing all the dispatching ourselves. So I think um, I'm clearly very bad at pricing services. And that was a real learning experience because we had a lot of restaurants that were locked into these lower rates. And we had to kind of go back to them with our tail between our legs saying, we want to work with you, but we just can't keep doing it to these numbers. We'll go out of business. And then we would just show them why. And a vast majority of them over time agreed to sort of ratchet it up so that we were at least profitable in those restaurants while we were bringing in new ones at a higher percentage. But um, I think setting a pricing model was something that we really struggled with. And I try to talk to sort of startup advisors, you know, startup owners now when I do any kind of like advising work to just say, you really need to lock that down and make sure it's reasonable for you. And don't be afraid to raise your prices um, later on when you have a reason to and you have the juice to sort of back it up. That is a very typical and not in a bad way, but that's a very typical origin problem that almost every startup entrepreneur has, especially early on in their entrepreneurial life cycle, right? Where the first thing is, it sort of comes from what we're now calling imposter syndrome, but it's sort of this thing of, all right, I got this great idea, but I I just want to sell, I just want to build quantity, right? And they, the, I guess the propensity for, I just need to get sales. I need to get something. I need to see some revenue hitting the bank account, even if it's keeping me in the red long-term big picture, just because I want to get something on the, on the sheet and say, I have enough and sort of proof of concept. Right. And, and it takes so much time and you, and you kind of take your licks. I think almost any entrepreneur that you talk to has that story at some point in their life cycle. So Thank you for sharing that. So it, how big did it get? So you, it lasted over eight years. You made it to December of 2016 before the acquisition. How big were you at that point? So we started the company with just the two of us and relying on um, all of our friends and family to take deliveries for us when we could. My dad took a few. We had That's a bunch awesome. of friends who could. And then we really wore out our welcome. We finally started hiring some drivers. So um by the time that we sold the company, we had about 200 independent contractor drivers on staff. They weren't employees. They were all independent contractors. And then we had about four full-time employees and then three or four part-time people who were kind of helping out on our craziest times and sort of um, helping with the rush. But it was all done very organically. I mean, we, we hired one driver when we needed one driver. And we hired two when we needed a second one. And then when we kind of 
had to get ourselves out of the dispatch chair, literally, so that we could go sell and grow the business and doing all those other things. That's when we sort of hired our first full-time guy to run the day-to-day operations. So we tried to do it really organically and scale and, you know, within a scalable sense. Um, And by the time we were done, we were doing about 450 deliveries on our busiest days. So we, we had grown it to a pretty significant rate. Um, most of those between like five and eight o'clock at, you know, at night. So we were mostly dinner rush based company kind of depends on where you're located. Some companies do bigger lunch business, but um, about 450 deliveries were some of our busiest days before the acquisition. Amazing. So just taking a half step back to the marketing piece, because this is from the beginning in 2008, not much social media that you could use a little bit, but not that much that you could use to spread the word. Right. So, and you were going door to door, pounding the pavement just to get these restaurants to jump on. So how were you then building, uh, awareness, market awareness with, with this new business? Like don't call the restaurant, call us instead. What was your marketing model? It's a great question. And everybody asked me when I started the company, how are you going to market this? And my response was, what are you talking about? This is the greatest idea of all time. How can people (laughs) not find out about this? And that is wrong. (laughs) People do not just find out about good ideas. That does not happen. So it really took us, I would say, two full years before we hit enough sort of, we had enough people who knew who we were and knew what we were doing, doing a good enough job that they were telling enough other people that we could really grow organically because we didn't have, we didn't, we bootstrapped the entire company. We never raised any money. Um, When we sold it, I owned half of it. And because of that, you know, when you own a business like that, every dollar you spend on marketing, in my case, it was 50 cents out of my pocket because I had one partner. So we really tried to do it slowly and organically. And I have a lot of thoughts about that. But when I, when I talk to startups now, I always ask them the question that I hated getting, which is, how are you going to market this? Because people will not just find out about your product. Now, for us, we had this benefit of having these restaurants partner with us that already had significant presences in the community. So what we were really doing was going into restaurants and saying, how could you not want to sign up for us? We're going to do all this marketing for you and drive you all this extra incremental business that you're not getting. But what we were getting in exchange for that was restaurants were doing marketing for us by putting you know, business cards on their, on their uh, receptionist stand or hostess stands that had a $5 off your first order coupon code or putting a big sign up in their window. We would always offer to print custom signs for our restaurants and get the biggest one they would put into their you know, space for us and things like that so that they were really doing a lot of the marketing for us. Eventually, the, the script did flip because we were doing enough business where we could say to a restaurant, the pie is this big. If you'd like a slice and you want to cut a slice off for yourself, all you got to do is sign this contract and give us your menu. But that didn't happen for years. Right. Really, like right. we, were, we were really lenient. We're relying on the restaurants to drive that business to us. We did a lot of other things along the way. Um, we animated a commercial that we showed on like local cable TV, which if you go to YouTube and you search mainline delivery, you can find it. It's a little blue car driving across the screen. Um, you know, we did a lot of marketing in local like synagogue and church materials that they give out to their people. But really none of those, I couldn't point to any single one marketing effort that we put out and say, that's the one that really did it. The, what it really was, was time, consumer education, and these restaurants and patients and, and these restaurants basically getting the word out for us until we had enough people who were just saying, we're doing this and telling their friends about it. Because while the industry was growing up around us with Uber and DoorDash and Caviar and all these other companies, we were really able to maintain a stranglehold on this one geography um, that, that we sort of you know were able to, to grow up in. And, and I do think that it's something that I struggle with to this day, actually, is that um, Look, first mover advantage is only an advantage if you're willing to take over the entire country. And we did not have the full vision, right? If you think about it, we really only had a hyper-local portion of what the real vision for this business could be because all these other companies, Uber, DoorDash, Caviar, came well after us and did essentially exactly what we're doing, but supercharged with venture capital funds Mm -hmm. so that they could go out and take over the country and not worry about what we were doing in our individual market. And it's not that I regret them for it. I mean, it, look, it's the same idea that we had, which again, we took from somebody else. So you can't fault somebody else for taking your idea and doing it bigger and better than you. But what we were able to do is hyper-focus on this one area and make sure that even though there were these better funded companies now competing with us on a national scale, we still had this little area that we had carved out that we sort of owned as ours. So I think it worked out for us 
in the in some ways, but in other ways, really we were short sighted about what this company could have been. Now you bootstrapped it the whole way, and this was sort of your way of of having a niche or niche, however you want to pronounce it, uh, market by just staying in the one geographic area. Now, was that intentional because of the bootstrapping nature of the business? Did you ever get approached by venture capital and, and refuse it? Or, or what was your position there? We, we spoke to investors a few times who weren't true venture capital companies. They were just some wealthy people in the area who took an interest in the, in the company as customers and were themselves wondering why we're not doing this in more than one place. Um, I think that from the start, you know, we didn't have this idea to blow this thing out nationally. We thought we could make this nice little, essentially mom and pop business in our area, in our area. Maybe it will be a nice second income for the two of us going forward. We can make it kind of passive income, which is a crazy thought in retrospect. There's nothing passive about that business. You have to be in it every day. But I just think that our vision from the beginning wasn't large enough, right? We didn't try to aggressively go, go to those people. We weren't traveling in those circles. I mean, I was, again, we weren't in that, we weren't in the finance world. We didn't have enough of an understanding about how those things work. And I think maybe if we had, perhaps we would have, but it really was just never part of the vision to do this globally. And I I actually think that I wish, this is going to sound weird to say, but I wish that I was worried less about the end user experience than I was. I think that we were to call myself a control freak is wrong because I'm really not a control freak at all, but I was very sensitive to people having a bad experience. And that meant that our phone, when it rang, we picked up and we talked to you as a human. There was no machine, right? Um, We were very much hands-on with our customers because a lot can go wrong in food delivery where the timing's got to be right. The order can get messed up. There are allergy issues. And we were so sensitive to wanting to provide the perfect experience for all of our customers that I don't think we built a system that could be scaled to what some of these other companies are doing. Um, I, one of the main complaints about all the food delivery companies these days is you can't talk to anyone, right? When, when something goes wrong, you send them a note through the app and they may or may not get back to you within 20 minutes. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. And you have to be comfortable with saying, okay, look, 95% of people are going to have a great experience. 5% are not. And like, that's just kind of okay, you know? And I don't think that I had maybe the maturity um, or the business sense, or I don't know what you want to call it exactly, to just be okay with that 5% of people saying that was not good. And that potentially handicapped our growth because we didn't really think that we could do this huge operation from one central location. Interesting. Really interesting. And I think, again, you're hitting hitting the, the nail on the head of something that entrepreneurs, especially ones who hit the ground running really successfully... You know, if you're getting five star Yelp reviews, that first one star, which you will eventually get, right? It's just going to happen. You you can't please everybody. It's just going to happen. And when it does, it's crushing. You carry that around for just days, weeks, months. You know, what did I do? What could I have done differently? But in some ways, if you can get over that and just get to that point where you're like, look, it's never going to be perfect in everybody's eyes. And you just got to focus on the 95% and the ones who don't like it, apologize, own it. You know, I'm not saying stiff arm them and say, well, screw you. You know, this is the way we're going to do things. But at the same time, you just cannot like kid gloves every single individual client that you have or else to your point, you, you won't be able to run the business. It won't be able to grow. There's no scalability there. Yeah, exactly. And I just didn't. I don't think I was mature enough or had enough business experience to kind of understand that. And, you know, we would troll the, the, the Facebook groups for bad reviews and then try to respond to them and then try to reach out to that customer. And it's just in retrospect, not a good use of our time. There were much better things that we could have been doing to just grow the business and say, exactly like you said, you can't please all the people all the time. So let's please as many as we can, but build systems to grow this thing. And I right. just, I'm not so sure that we had the maturity to see it. At the time. And also, I think in, in your particular business model, the real client, they're both clients, but the real client is the restaurant, right? It's keeping them happy overall. And the, the end user, while technically a client, is really just that's actually kind of your, your product or service, right? That you're selling to the restaurant is these pool of, this pool of end users that you can provide them. And, and it's easy because the end consumer is the noisy one that's going to write the bad Facebook reviews, that's going to write the 
the the scathing one star, you know, uh, my driver showed up two seconds late and he was driving a Ferrari. What kind of business is this? You know, it's always these like ridiculous things. Like you go on Amazon, you'll see like, you know, a bunch of one star reviews that say box was dented or packaged didn't arrive on time. That's not a review of the product. That's a review right. of your experience. There are two different things here. And, uh, and, and that's kind of the world that we live in, unfortunately. All right. So, so Square comes along. How did that happen? How did, how did Square discover you or, or how did you guys make the connection with Square and kind of walk us through, let's start with the big picture. The very first, like Square might be interested in acquiring this thing. Sure. So, um, I have a, a friend, I'm going to call him out by name. His name is Dan Strauss. He's a great guy. He's a Philadelphia area guy. And um, I owe him a lot in my life, actually. So he introduced me to my wife in college. They were friends in high school. And, um, you know, he, we lived on the same floor and he introduced me to her and we ended up, you know, getting married. And that's a whole other story. But he also um, was at a party. This was in 2000, this was at sometime in 2016. And he met, he, his wife had been friends with the woman who happened to be the general manager of Caviar in Philadelphia. And I'm not sure exactly what the specifics of the conversation were, but somehow it came up that she was trying to expand Caviar, who thus far had only been in Center City, Philadelphia, out to the main line. And one of the interesting things, interesting things about this business is that it's a, it's a web service, so you can do it anywhere, but you have to have a base of drivers in, in a place to really have it you know, work out. And if you just look at Philadelphia geographically, if you want to expand to the Western suburbs, you have to go through the main line. So they were trying to expand out to the suburbs. And the, the way to do that is just go out sort of concentric circles and go out to the sort of the next one out there. And so they very quickly hit the main line, tried to sign up restaurants, and were just kept hearing, we're in a, an exclusive contract with mainline delivery. And we were getting sort of rumblings that they were talking to our restaurants. And it, it's a very restaurant-driven business. So the website with the best restaurants is the one that's going to get the business because the service is sort of like a commodity. And you can see it now with, um, with, with Uber and Lyft, right? There's no distinguishable difference between the services they provide, which means I am always going to use the cheaper one, right? Um, and I've said this before, it's kind of funny where like Lyft could give me 365 days of free rides. And on day 366, I will open <laughs> both apps and choose the cheaper, right? There's literally nothing they can do to win my loyalty long-term except always be cheaper. Well, in the restaurant delivery service industry, you, you kind of have a, a, this differentiator, which is if you have a really popular restaurant that the competitors don't have, it doesn't matter if you're more expensive or worse at the job because people want that restaurant, right? They're trying to get that food. So when they tried to come out to, to the main line, they kind of kept running into these roadblocks. So I think she, the story, as I understand it, is she mentioned to my friend Dan that mainline delivery was giving her trouble with expansion. <laughs> and he kind of said to her, like, I know that guy. <laughs> And he literally put me in touch with her wow. and we had one conversation and then it kind of got kicked over to the square M and a team. And then the conversations just kind of started. Um, I think it's important to throw out there too, that while this is a technology company, if you had to dump it into a bucket, this is not a technology company in that it's endlessly scalable. It's a technology company with a very real world service attached to it, which can't, it's not like a SaaS company where any, every person on the planet can be a customer because we'll just make you a fresh instance and you can run with it and do your right, thing, right? right. Um, this is very much a classic, like we have revenue, we have costs, we have profit, and like we can really figure out what these companies are worth. So um, when, they, when we sort of started in the negotiations, it was pretty clear that that was the way they were approaching it. And we kind of understood that. And that made the process go a lot faster and smoother. I think a lot of people um, really overvalue their business and what it's worth. And that stops a lot of potential invest, you know, acquirers from even really wanting to go down the path because they're being so unrealistic. Um, I think in retrospect, we probably undervalued ourselves because again, we, we were young and I don't think we couldn't quite, maybe didn't quite understand what we had. But the fact that we had a at least realistic idea of what our company was worth and didn't have our head in the clouds made the process go a lot faster. Now, what what model did you use? Did you go hire a company to to give you some form of uh, evaluation, or did you just say these are our assets, these are our liabilities, this is what we think it's worth, or this is our our profit margin on an annual basis times some form of EBITDA or something like that? What did yeah, what we, did you use? 
we were basically doing it on a multiple of profits for the company, um, which was really, in our opinion, and we inflated it because, you know, there were some synergies where they were going to take our operation folded into theirs. And there, so we, we tried to sort of handicap for that um, in, in a positive way, right? We tried to overvalue our, our, ourselves based on what we thought a normal business would be, but we didn't go in. And frankly, by the time that we were acquired, it's not like we had this such a novel idea that we could, they could go take this idea and go blast it all over the country. Right. They were folding us in as one more market into what they were already doing because a lot of, by this time, DoorDash, this is very fascinating. It's kind of a digression, but if you look at how DoorDash took over the market, which they have now kind of taken over the market, they bought Caviar from Square since then. I mean, there were talks about them buying Uber Eats or we're talking about Grubhub. There's been some consolidation. So, um, DoorDash took an opposite approach where they actually went out to the suburbs first and worked their way into cities. So we were getting competition from the city out, from the suburbs in, and we kind of found ourselves as, you know, a political science major and a chemical engineer sitting there with this company all of a sudden thinking like, our competitors are really scary. <laughs> um, and it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a intimidating place right, to be, right. to be honest. And I think that we were sort of relieved when the opportunity to kind of let it go and, and have it become part of this bigger company came along. Um, but it, the whole process took, I want to say, four months of actual negotiating and then about two more months of work on the front end to make it close. There were some conditions. We had to bring our restaurants over and things like that. But the whole thing happened, I mean, very, very quickly within the span of six months from first conversation till deal close. Six months is fast for, for an M&A deal, fast. especially an, an acquisition. And I'm assuming it was just an asset purchase and and you guys kept liabilities and stuff like that just in case and smooth deal in, in that context. Correct. And now four years later, I think we're past most statutes limitations. So I think we're, uh, we're clear on the liability side, but exactly right. I mean, the things that they were really interested in were our customer list, our restaurant list and our technology, frankly, they shelved it. I mean, we thought it was really good, but they didn't need, it. they had, they had their own platform, right. And a huge engineering team and the resources of square and all these other things that they could do on the technology side of things. They didn't need two guys from the main line outside of Philadelphia to tell them how they should operate their website. <laughs> so it really was a restaurant play and a customer play and then having us there to help make the transition easy. Yeah. So then you shift over to Square as an account executive and you were you were there for quite a while. You stayed for two and a half years. Was that to continue sort of the main line operations mainly? Did you kind of get into different areas at Square or was it just kind of see this thing out the rest of the way and then you're you're free and clear? Um, well, the short version of it is I needed a job, right? Um, I, they were about to take over my company. I really did not want to go be an attorney, right. all respect to attorneys, right. but I very much did not want to go practice law. And I knew a lot about the food delivery space and it was helpful for them to have someone come make this transition smooth and to talk to these restaurant owners and someone who who, um, who knew what they were talking about and had a pre previous relationship. So um, the the job with Square was not part of the acquisition necessarily. It wasn't a required right, part of the, right. uh, the but it was it was offered to me as part of it, and I decided to take it. I really wanted to work for Square. I, I love Square. I think that they have an amazing mission with their economic empowerment and you know banking the unbanked and these things that they're doing in in the financial communities. I think are amazing. Um, I'm not so sure anyone really understood why Square owned Caviar in the first place. It didn't seem like there were a whole lot of synergies there, despite what, you know, what they were saying. And eventually they did end up spinning it off and selling it out to, you know, selling it to DoorDash. So I think they, they kind of came to that realization also, but um, it, it allowed me to one, spend a lot of time at home with my family. because I was working from home. I was working with the same people I was already working with at these restaurants. And it helped me sort of get some real world corporate experience, which I hadn't had because I went and I started this company immediately out of college. I really hadn't gone to work for a big institution like that. So it was really helpful for me. And I stayed because I really liked the work. I mean, I liked the people that I was working with. Um, so I did it for a little over two years. One of the problems with, I think that Square didn't have a big presence in Philadelphia. It was just the caviar team who ran here. So there weren't really, at least in my rightfully or wrongfully and potentially wrongfully that I didn't feel that there were huge potential for, uh, for growth there. And I didn't want to move. I really liked Philadelphia. I wasn't planning on moving anywhere. So I think that two years in it sort of just ran its course and I was kind of sick of doing what I've been doing for the last 10 years. Um, I love restaurant owners, but they're not the easiest people to work with, uh, by and large. And, um, I think it was just time to move on. And I, I do want to say about Square, because I, I really am a huge fan of them as a company, is they have this, um, it's called a tour of duty theory of work, which there's a whole book on it. You can go read it. But basically, it's kind of like a less extreme version of what Netflix used to do, which is you've come here to complete a task or to learn a skill or to grow. And when you don't feel like you're doing that anymore, 
like, we'll try to find you another job or you should move on. And like, that's okay. And let's like keep that line of dialogue open. So I went to my boss and I said, you know, I'm really thinking that I've, I've like run my, t- my course here. I'd like to explore other options. And they gave me a four month runway to basically keep doing what I was doing while also knowing that there was a date that I was going to be leaving four months out from then. And I really respect them and appreciate that they would do that and trust me to sort of see, you know, a lot of companies, when they feel like you have one foot out the door, they push you the rest of the way out the door. And they very much said, like, please keep handling your responsibilities. Don't let them go. And like, we appreciate the notice and we understand and we wish you all the best. Right. And um, that really, to me, like bred a lot of loyalty where even though I was leaving, I have so many good things to say about them as a company because it was just such a... Um, it was just such a refreshing thing for me. That's not how I understood it to happen in most places. Yeah, that's actually pretty incredible. And I, I, when you hear those kinds of stories, it gives you a renewed sense of there are good humans out there <laughs> that are, are trying to make life better for for all of us. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I think that is a cool story. And and congrats on on a smooth exit transition. What are your sort of best pieces of advice? for someone who maybe is in some plateau in their business, right? Uh, to getting to that point where they might be able to scale and then exit. I think a lot of startup um, people or entrepreneurs who are just starting their businesses, they get really stuck in the day-to-day operations of their business. And for us, it was literally about getting out of the driver's seat, right? Literally, because we were taking all the deliveries, but it was really just about getting out of the dispatcher seat and getting out of the day-to-day operations of how do I, how is this business running? And not that you can just trust somebody else to run your business because you never can. Um, you always have to be there and you're old. no one who's not, doesn't own a piece of the business will ever care about your business as much as you do. No question about it. But it doesn't mean that you can afford to spend all day worrying about the minutia of how things are running on a day-to-day basis. And somebody has to be thinking about the 10,000 foot view. And I don't think we did a good enough job of that in the first two years where maybe we would have realized that we had this larger opportunity if we could just think a little bit bigger. But we did eventually hire someone who ended up stealing money from us and we had to terminate him. That's a whole nother story. But at least we had the opportunity to step away from, you know, the actual day-to-day operations and getting so bogged down to think about like, how do we go sign more restaurants? How do we think outside the box about marketing? How do we, what's the next territory that we're going to expand to? That's because we were doing this adjacent expansion. We were just bumping out our territory incrementally. We started very small and got bigger as we could handle it. And like our business didn't really start to take off until we had hired someone to do the day-to-day dispatching of the drivers so that we could deal with very high level problems. And other than that, run the weekly tasks that had to be run, but then also thinking about just like, how can we grow this business? And my wife used to say to me all the time, she said, you're barely working. I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I will never have these good ideas unless I have this time to just sit here and think about it. Because if you're so bogged down with just what's right in front of you, you'll never take the time to think about what the larger picture looks like. And I'm not saying you sit around and do nothing all the time, but I'm, you know what I mean? It's just somebody has to be thinking about what's the real growth plan here for the long term. Uh, that's, yeah, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is you just, you can't ignore marketing as much as you want to, because you have to figure out a way to get people to find out about your idea. Otherwise, nobody will. It doesn't matter how good it is. And the best idea that no one knows about is a terrible idea. And let me say one more thing, which is um, ideas are meaningless. Everybody has good ideas. Everybody has good ideas all the time. And I can't tell you how many people said to me in the fifth or sixth year of mainline delivery when it was already clear it was a success. I had this idea 10 years ago. I look at them and I would say, that means nothing to me. (laughs) Right? Did you execute on it? End of the day. That's it. Having an idea is nothing. Everybody has good ideas. Nobody acts on them. Right? And that's where the real skill is, is getting out there and just doing it. Just start. Just start doing something. Right? It can be small. It can be a small step. Do some market research. Interview some people. Just go out there and do something. And that's the way that these things will grow and these things will start. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I think that to your point, there there are a ton of good ideas. There are a ton of opportunities to take two things and put them together like you did. And um, not to say that there isn't some brilliance in the execution, because there is. That's that's the big part of it, right? But at the same time, it's exactly what you're saying. It's sitting around and going, I have all these great ideas and not executing on them is useless. 
And then going back to your other point about needing the time, I I listened to because no, you know, I didn't read this book. I listened to the audiobook called Make Noise by Eric Newsom that's about creating a podcast. And the book is fascinating to me because I'd say 80% of the book is actually about marketing, if not more, right? It's really just about full on how to market a startup. And he applies, you know, figuring out your why and your audience's why and your target audience and all of these different things. And one of the things that he actually does talk about in the book is when you finally need to hire people in that you need to understand that you can, if you want your team to be creative and to do amazing things that move the company forward, you can't give them more than 20 hours of actual work because those 20 hours actually take roughly 40 hours to complete. And if you're overloading them with 40 hours of literal, you know, eight to five or eight to six or whatever of literal work and tasks to do, they will never have the time to develop anything creatively or to just sit down and think about a creative solution to a problem. And you'll never get anywhere. You'll just spin your wheels or you'll get frustrated or they'll get frustrated because they won't be able to complete the work and be effective. So it changed my mindset about how 20 hours of actual work really does. And we know this as attorneys because the law firm world is fraught with this like billable hour concept, which is like, you know, not every hour that you're actually doing work, right? Like emailing, prospecting, all of that stuff doesn't count for billable hours and real billable hours take almost double the time, right? So if you're at an 1800 hour a year firm, which is pretty typical, that's like 37 and a half hours a week ballpark, which really means you're working like 60, like actual work, right? So and people wonder why no one likes being an attorney. Yeah, exa- exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly right. I'm 100% with you on that one. I actually, you know, b- being now like just working for myself, having my own practice and having just the autonomy to be able to say, all right, line up and, and kind of running myself that way and saying to myself, you know, all right, legal practice is going to take this much time. Doing the podcast takes roughly, I've gotten a little bit better at it just because I've done now, you know, 90 some odd episodes. So you just build a skill set. But they, I tell people all the time, a podcast takes like 10 hours an episode. You need to set aside that time and, you know, just prospecting and preparing for the show and doing research on whoever you're going to interview and then doing the show itself and then going on and editing the show. So all of those things take up so much time. So you need to like set aside, all right, I need this much time for the podcast. I need this much time to run my law practice. I need this much time to teach at Temple. I need this much time to do X, Y, and Z. And if you think about it, it it, it makes sense. That's 20 hours of actual work takes almost 35 to 40 realistically to do. So if you're loading people up with this, this overabundance of work and you're not allowing for the creative time like you talked about. And then the worst thing that can happen is when you're overly busy and you're overloaded, it's in the back of your mind still. And there's these things, it's almost like a voice in your head just yelling ideas at you or saying, you know, why aren't you thinking about this or looking for a creative solution to marketing? But yeah, I've I've definitely recently made that discovery that like you need to find ways to to market. And there are experts out there if you find the right ones. Um, we've been fortunate enough. We interviewed Lance Bachman of one SEO. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. Lance, but he's big in that space. He's someone that I would, I would say to people, like, if you don't know where else to go, that's not a bad place to start. And, well, and he does a great job of marketing himself too, with the exactly. LinkedIn videos he does, the yeah. podcast. And the, I mean, I see, I, I don't know him personally, but I still see him all over the place. Yeah. 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 The billboards on I-95. I see. The, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Lance is an awesome guy. Um, uh, happy to connect you guys, by the way. So, uh, yeah, that's the thing is you have to set aside time, money, resources, resources to be able to say, how are we going to get butts and seats to, to put eyeballs on what we're doing, product, service, whatever it is. And, and just like, I'm going to start a social media account or I'm just going to start telling people. You can get there to your point, but it's going to take years. It's going to take years to build that that trust in the market and and that status, right? I agree completely. And I think that had we started our company five years after we did using the same strategy, 
we never would have gotten off the ground. Wow. Because we wouldn't have had that runway to take the two to three years to get the critical mass of people who needed to know about us to do this by word of mouth. Somebody else would have just come in and outspent us and it would have, been, it would have blown us out of the water. Right. So fortunately, I think we were early enough that we had the sort of time that we were able to kind of give it that time that we needed to give it to let it grow. Um, where we probably wouldn't have in today's environment where everyone's going to raise a lot of money and supercharging their growth, but basically through spending. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. If people want to reach out, they're looking for somebody to represent them in a commercial real estate deal. What's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, sure. I actually, I get this question a lot, by the way, about how I ended up going into real estate, which is kind of a funny thing. I, but I do think that it's, you know, it's an amazing uh, opportunity to combine my sort of what I've learned as an entrepreneur and running a business with my sort of legal background and skills and all combined into one. And it's, it's really been, you know, I get to kind of help companies do things that I think I probably couldn't have done so well when I first started. So if you do want to reach out to me, you can always do it by email. It's dritterman at tactics.com. Tactics is T-A-C-T-I-X. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I've been doing a video series talking to people about how the pandemic is affecting their business. Hopefully people find that useful. Um, posting some real estate stuff up there also, but dritterman at tactics.com. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.